Well, we continue in our consideration of the Westminster Confession, and we come to chapter 12 of adoption. We're right in the heart of the doctrine of salvation. Last week we did of justification. This week we do of adoption. And there's one paragraph only, but it's a great one. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Amen to that. Let's look through this. First of all, this is the shortest chapter in the Confession. And you go, wow, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. It's the first of the Reformed Confessions to have a chapter on adoption, that grace by which God makes those who were his enemies into his children. And probably this is one of the few areas where it represents an advance in the coalescing of understanding by the Westminster divines. Uh, For the most part, they're not constructing new doctrine. They all showed up believing these things, and they were working out how to express them best. They were the recipients of their doctrine. Uh, But here's one, and, and the decision they make, it's an interesting one, a lot of debate went into it, is adoption one of the benefits of justification, or is it its own benefit of union with Christ through faith. And I think the reason that they are right to say it's actually its own category is because it's a different type of blessing. Justification deals with the the, the legal problem that we have. We're under the guilt of God and of his justice. And so it's the way by which guilty people are justified by the righteousness of Christ. And so it's a legal construct. This is the familial bond. We, 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 we have more than legal needs. We have a need to belong. How powerful that is today. We live in a world where people long to belong. So many people may not have even have known a father's love. In fact, as a preacher in America today, you can hardly teach on the fatherhood of God without saying, by the way, I know that some of you find this hard because you never knew a father's love. Well, this is the father you had been longing for. That's the kind of society we are today. And it makes this teaching very powerful because God not only uh, forgives us and justifies us, he owns us. He brings us into his familiar relationship. Now, another reason this is a short chapter is being the first time it's been treated this way, there wasn't false teaching really to confront. A lot of the confession's details is dealing with false teachings. And since this is the first time it's ever gotten its own chapter, there's not a lot of false teaching that they confront. But it's a a short but a great chapter. And what they're saying is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we partake of the grace of adoption. We are brought into the family of God as... I love this line from Ephesians 5.1, as dearly beloved children. That's something... Those are verses we should memorize. That's a thought we should highlight. I am a dearly beloved child of God. Parents love their children, even sinful parents, love their children and delight to see them 
and we become dearly beloved children of God. And so in salvation, we are on the one hand, we're acquitted of guilt, but then we're brought into the family of the judge. He not only says you may go, he says you may come. We're going to provide a home for you, a place to belong, a place where you will have a family. It's God desires for us to know his love as members of his family. So A.H. Hodge says, what it involves is a total change of relation to God. Now, I dare say that since the, since the Westminster Divines, there has been a major error that has flipped, come into the doctrine of, the, of, of adoption. It's come through liberalism, and it's the notion that God is the father of all people. God is everyone's father, and the Bible just denies that. And there's that one line in Paul's sermon on, on Mars Hill in Athens where he says we are all God's offspring. He did not mean that we all have a familial relationship with the father. He meant that he's our creator. But the, the, the teaching that, that we are all God's children is completely refuted by Scripture. We were objects of wrath. We were alienated from God. We were, we were strangers to the covenant of promise, Ephesians uh, 2.11. Uh, we, are, we become children of God, and he becomes our father through union with Christ in faith. Chad Van Dixhorn writes, what a freedom it is to be able to address God as our Father, even though he is in heaven and we are on earth. What a privilege it is to have brothers and sisters in every corner of the globe. One thing that should never be true is that a Christian doesn't belong. It doesn't feel like they belong. And that does happen. We, we have cliques, we have social habits that remain sinful. But the fact is that every Christian does belong, belongs to God, and therefore to God's family. Now, working out the details of this, this is a good chapter for breaking down what this means. The basic point is that we are taken into the number of the children of God, and we have his name placed upon us. And one of the first verses you think of is 1 John 1.12, to all who received him, to believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we become children of God. We gain the right of adoption by that means. Now, and, and there's no doubt that Paul, in the background of Paul's thinking of adoption, is in fact the Roman adoption practices. Uh, in Rome, it was not a second-class thing to be adopted. It was actually a first-class thing. And, uh, and, and by the way, here is where, when we're talking about adoption, we might, have a, we might be tempted to demasculize it. And there are places where the Bible does not have a masculine angle to it. But on the most part, the doctrine of adoption is adoption as sons. You go, well, I'm a girl. Well, I'm a bride and I'm a boy. I mean, these are, these are relational metaphors. So we get to be brides and you all get to be sons because there's a, an adoptive son aspect that's going to particularly come through on the heirship in the ancient world's daughters did not inherit. There's an inheritors. There's a carrying on the name and taking up the, the father's work. Uh, he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's an example where it's both male and female. And I will write on him the name of my God. And so uh, if you, you, when you're adopted... You're brought into a family and you, you become part of that family unit. You come under the fatherhood of the father and you receive his name. What a powerful thing it is to bear the name 
of your father. And, um, and, and, and we, and God's name is upon us. Now that's saying that we have that kind of relationship where he himself, this is something God has done. God has affected that kind of relationship where he owns us as his own, as his own children. And of course, children represent the father. You know, there's a certain sense you don't really know someone until you meet their children. And you meet the children, it tells you an awful lot about the man and about fathers and mothers. And God takes us to be his children. Now, I mentioned last week in the scripture reading on in John 20, when Jesus was talking to Mary Magdalene outside the, the garden tomb, he says, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Our sonship is, the, as sons, we have the same relationship to the father as Jesus does. The same love, the same bond, the same freedom, the same privileges. We become the children of God. Now, I love this slide. From now, remember from last time, I, I'm building on that slide. Last time I pointed out that through faith, that's the Cairo, by the way. We don't, we don't want a physical image of Jesus. That's the ancient church, the first two letters of Christos, the Cairo, Christ. Through faith, we have union with Christ. And last time we said there's a forensic, a legal benefit. We're forgiven and justified. There's also a transformative benefit. We haven't gotten to it yet. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. But there's also a relational benefit that we are adopted in the Son. We are sons in the Son. By the grace of God, through union with Christ, we're adopted. Justification does not cause adoption. The adoption does not cause sanctification. Christ causes them all. Through faith, we have union with Christ, and we simultaneously are justified, adopted, and sanctified. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's a big Part of the New Testament theology, it should be a big part of our theology as well. We become members of God's family. We become his children, in particular, his sons. Well, it also says we, we then enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. And the rest of the paragraph is really working through what are the privileges of being the children of God. And these are really important things for us to have clear in our minds, and this is a good statement of it. First of all, we have a spiritual instinct of children that is given to us. We receive the spirit of adoption. Now, that's no doubt reflecting on Romans eight fifteen to 16. In fact, every one of these you can think of the verses they're thinking of. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the the indwelling Holy Spirit creates an awareness of our relationship to the Father. We have an instinct, a a child, think particularly of little children. They see their parents and they, they recognize them and they go that way. And they know that's where safety is found and love is found. It's an, it's an instinct that they have. We, too, have the instinct of adoption. Years ago, I was taking off. It was from, I remember it was from Chicago's Midway Airport. I was speaking at a conference, and we were going from one place to another. And we were in one of those in a prop plane. And uh, I'm not, honestly, I'm not that worried about planes, but the other guy was. And, but he actually said to me, he goes, uh, 
You know, I was in a plane that crashed leaving this airport two weeks ago. That got my attention. And uh, he said, what was interesting was, in fact, he goes, we were were taking off at this moment. The wind was kind of buffering. He goes, yeah, right about now the plane tilted, went off in the seat. See that? That was my plane. And he goes, what was a real blessing to me was as our plane was crashing through the trees and the wind, I'm just telling you what he told me, and 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 the wings are being knocked off, I cried out, Father, save me. He said, afterwards, it was such a strengthening of my assurance that without even thinking about it, I cried to him as father. I'm like, well, this is not exactly the right time to tell that story. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, but I've never forgotten that because it's true. So often when we find ourselves in sudden danger, we, we, we pray. And we pray to God as father. Why? Because we have the, the spiritual instinct of children of God uh, the, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, because the spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, secondly, we have, we have the privilege, the great privilege of access to prayer, access to God in prayer. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Now you go, does that mean that other people who do not have the privilege of prayer? And the answer is yes. Everyone has the duty of prayer. Everybody has a duty of worship, but not everyone has the duty of knowing that their prayer is accepted by God. Years ago now, 20 years ago, I was doing village evangelism with a local Presbyterian church outside Kampala, Uganda, and I had a, 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 very, it was a very interesting couple of days. And one of these, we were, I was talking to this large group of uh, Muslim women, and I, it occurred to me to ask them, when you pray to your God, what name do you give him? And they said, we, his name is Allah. And they'd been complaining to me about how God let them down because you know, their children were sick and dying. They were oppressed. They were starving. And I said to them, what is the name of your God? They said, the name of the God to whom we pray is Allah. Now, that's a distant, transcendent, non-relational, sovereign God. And I said to them, the gospel tells you that if you believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, you will pray to a heavenly Father. And it was striking to me how much that connected with them. Because when people have only had a distant, only transcendent view of God, that the thought that of a Father who loves me and is invested in me, his honor is wrapped up in me, that was a huge deal to them. And I think it was effective in them coming to saving faith. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. In fact, the preceding verses, Jesus says, When you pray, do not pray like the pagans do by, with, with the multiplication of words. Uh, he's saying pa- pagans pray by sheer intensity. They work it up. And they, they, they say formulas and they have magic keys. And you think of in, in, in when, John, when Elijah was challenging the priests of Baal and they were cutting themselves and all these gyrations. And Jesus says, what's wrong with you? That's the way pagans prayer. A Christian simply says, our, my father. We, and and that, that establishes our right to prayer. That we come to God and he receives us. Why? Because we are his children. Now, nowadays, we have cell phones with texts and Venmos, as any parent of teenagers knows. And it's amazing, even when you get them all the time, how quickly a parent will answer a text or a phone call from a child. The meeting stops. That phone call is answered. 
that text, it doesn't work the other way, by the way, particularly when they go to college and beyond. You're like, what happened to this texting thing? Oh, I didn't see it. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> one time I said, you know, uh, I'm not paying your bill this month until the text gets answered. Oh, sorry, Dad. You know, uh, Children do that, but the parents do not do that. Why? Because they love them. And they're invested in so much, so many New Testament teachings. <clears throat> Some New Testament teachings point out, this is the parable of the friend at midnight in Luke 11, that God's honor is involved in you. God has promised to answer your prayers. And if he does not answer your prayers, then he just, he, then God would bring dishonor. He's not going to do that. His honor, his glory is bound up in it. And, and a father, even today, you may have a very impressive person, but if he doesn't provide for his children, you think of the scorn that's on deadbeat dads. You know, our society doesn't, isn't willing to shame many things other than Christianity and conservatism. But, uh, but a deadbeat dad, it's dishonorable for a father not to care for and provide for and hear the children. I love Luke 11, uh, particularly afterwards where he talks about uh, if you who are evil know how to give good, good, good things to your children. If you're a father and your child asks for bread, you won't give him a stone. If he asks for an egg, you won't give him an eel. That's a particularly gross one. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father? He actually says the better thing, the Holy Spirit. But the first point is that instinct of fatherhood that we see in our relationships with children, you have to be pretty depraved not to have that. It happens, but it's awfully bad not to have that responsive love for your children. He goes, well, God is not sinful. He is not evil. He's a perfect heavenly father. And he will give to those who ask. He gives to his children. You know, now God is not a grandfather. and He doesn't indulge. He doesn't spoil us. We pray for what we want. We may not get it. But particularly the things that we need, we can be confident of. And so many things we're told to pray for help under temptation. We're being tempted. We pray, and it's that God answers that prayer. We, 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 we pray for opportunities to serve the Lord. He gives them. I think of, you know, as a father, there's things that my children, particularly when they're young, they know there's change I want in their life. And if they say one of my children came to me, I, I'm just, I, I don't have anybody in mind, but let's just say that they were getting in trouble with me for talking back to their mother. That certainly happened many times. And, uh, and then one of the children came to me and said, Father, I, it's really on my heart. I'm convicted that your law says I should not be talking back to my mother. You possess the power. Now, I don't, but God does. This is the point. Father, you possess the power to change my heart. Would you do that? Now, if I had the power to change a child's heart, a child of mine, for a matter that I'm concerned about, would I do it? I absolutely would do it. When you and I pray to the Heavenly Father for the things that he says are good and right, and we say, Lord, give me, change my attitude. Cause me to be more gracious. Change the way I talk about people. Take away my bitterness. Change the way I, I resent. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. And you pray to him, he does have the power to do it. And this is one of the keys to our spiritual growth, our growth in grace, to pray about the things that we know the Holy Spirit wants us to be working on in our lives. We can be certain. That doesn't mean he's going to do it tomorrow. Uh, the Lord has all kinds of wisdom at, at work, but we can be confident. 
He is going to do it. Lord, keep me from renouncing my faith when I go to college. That's a good prayer. You know, and, and, and the person who prays that way is going to walk closely with the Lord, that kind of thing. We have pr- the privilege of prayer, access to the throne of grace with, with boldness. We have the privilege of fatherly care. A father cares for his children. I love how they put it, and this is drawing from the scriptures, that they are pitied, protected, and provided for. A father protects his children. He cares for them. He provides for their needs. How many men weary themselves. Why? Because they're saving money for their child's education. Or they, 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 maybe because they, they want to buy a bike for that child. Because they, 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 there's a pity they have and they, they have, there's a love they want to manifest. Maybe it's to clothe them and to provide food on the table. Well, the Bible says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear them. I wonder if you realize that the father has compassion on you in your struggles. Because we tend to go, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, 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 I've got some sinful tendencies, so God hates me. No, no, he knows that you're a sinner. Of course he wants you to make progress, but he has pity on you. You're being afflicted unfairly. God cares about that. You're sorrowing. We've had so many deaths in our congregation, and there's people who are mourning how important to know that God, our Heavenly Father, pities us, and he cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. And you think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm impressed. It would, it would do us all a lot of good to read the Sermon on the Mount maybe once a month or so. And he talks about don't be anxious. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither sow nor spin, but God clothes them in all the glory of Solomon. And then he says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Father, Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now that's not saying don't work hard. It says don't be anxious, but we're to pray and we're to, we're to believe and to know that he cares and provides for his children. And how many people, we've had it in my own family, a child saying, I, I, I'm lonely and I need a friend. And so we pray, a lot, oh, we pray, oh Lord, provide a friend for my child. And it's wonderful to see later how he answered that prayer. Uh, provide a spouse for my child. That's a good thing for parents. A godly, loving spouse, a, a godly, loving, responsible child. As my children know, those are the three things I'm looking for. Godly, loving, and responsible I'm for men. Um, and, uh, and Lord, provide that. I'm looking forward to how he answers those prayers. But he cares for me. He cares for my Christian children. And so we have that fatherly care. And then we are chastened by him as by a father. Oh, oh, that. Well, yes, that. Again, not grandfather, but father. I remember when our children were little, I remember it was Matthew in particular, he was about three years old, and we were visiting my mother staying in her condo. This is when we only had two children, or maybe two with a little one, the third one. And, uh, my, and I think I was spanking Matthew for some deserved reason. And my mother said to me, you know, son, do you have to do that? And I said, yes. And then my mother said, I don't remember ever spanking you. And I said, well, mother, I do, and I thank you for it. I don't think I ever spanked you with the spoon, with the shoe, with the thing, you know. You're just, you just gotten tenderhearted. Uh, God is not my elderly mother. He's my young mother, the one who spanked me. You know, Hannah, my daughter, is a sec- was a second and third grade teacher, is, 
And the situation in public schools is say different than when I was in second grade. When I was in second grade, the principal walked the hall with a paddle with holes in it. And I was never paddled in second or third grade because the example of others was extremely salutary because you'd hear the wax out there and it was, it was disciplined for their good. God disciplines us. Why we don't, it's, it's hard. Many of some of us maybe in this room are feeling God's discipline. What are we to do? We're to repent. We're to repent, but we, but that, it's not a harsh, it's not, God does not want to hurt you. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines for us, us for our good that we may share his holiness. Not every trial is caused by God's discipline directly. But I would dare say that you, you may have a sense if you're in a great trial that maybe you are being chastened. Or if you're going, you know, if the Lord's chastening me, it would be for this reason. Well, let me make a suggestion. Change that thing. Repent of that thing. Stop doing that flagrant sin. God loves you enough to make you change. A loving parent. I just saw another parent thing. I never, we're raising our children. We will never say no to our children. I'm like, just shoot them. I mean, I'm not, don't actually shoot them. Internet viewers, I am not saying shoot your children. I'm saying that's effectively what you are doing. It's effectively what you're doing. And this crazy failure to realize they're sinners. Well, I'm a sinner even now. And the Lord disciplines my because he's our father. And he loves us and we can trust him. And we should pay attention to his loving word. You know, one of the greatest things is that for a Christian in sin, repentance is the best thing they can ever do. To repent of the sin that's bringing you under displeasure is not only what you should do, it's not only what God's trying to make you do, it is the best thing and it will lead to a complete restoration. You think of the prodigal son, the forgiveness, the cleansing of sin, the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, the restoration of an abundance of blessings. He is a loving father and he disciplines us. That is a privilege of our adoption. And yet we are never cast off. A father never casts off his children. I, I'm sure you said it to your children. I hope you said it to your children. Uh, I would never, nothing you can ever do would make me despise you. I will never not love you. I will never cast you off. Now, you can cause me to lose a lot of sleep. You can make me pretty miserable. Please don't. But I mean, I will never cease being your father. My love. I, I like to say, uh, raising my children, I never had a doghouse. You know, you know doghouse is when you, you're in trouble and the mood is angry. And it's just kind of this cloud and this tensity. I always said, I don't have a doghouse. I do have a penalty box. But, there, but the, 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 the kind of, you know, almost the hatred, the anger of the father. We need to get rid of that. Uh, we discipline for their good, and we will never cast them off, and we will never cease pursuing them in a loving way. For the Lord will, never, will not cast us off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. And, of course, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the end, and no one can snatch you out of your father's hand. Well, the last privilege of adoption is inheritance. And here's where it becomes particularly sonship. We inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. This whole world in which we're living is like, a, is like childhood. You go, well, Rick, you're, you're, I'm 61 years old, in case you're wondering. And I will look back from heaven and tell myself now as if I was a little child. 
His whole life is preparation for an age of glory that is to come. And that is God's design, that we would, we would enter into the fullness of the blessings when sin will be no more, and we will be heirs. That's what Paul says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, when he says we're heirs of Christ, it doesn't mean that Christ has the whole thing and each of us gets a little sliver. It means that we are co-heirs with him of it all. We are co-heirs with him of the whole glory to come. It's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Whatever troubles we have in this life, whether we cause them or others cause them, some combination of that is probably true. Uh, through union with Christ and faith, as children of God, this life is designed by our loving Heavenly Father to an eternity. We have something to look forward to. This is why Christians languishing in cells about to be put to death so often have joy because they are heirs of the living God. And their inheritance can never be touched. And Jesus, on the, this is, these are his words from Matthew 25 on the final judgment. Come, you who are blessed by my children, by Father, inherit the children prepared for you. Uh, try and inherit the, the, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has prepared an inheritance for us from the foundation of the world. All of biblical history has been God glorifying his grace by redeeming sinners out of the fall and through this world and into an inheritance that will last forever and ever. Well, let's love him. Let's serve him. Let's respond to him with real eagerness. Let's enter the family business. Let's do the work of the Lord in this age, the work that we do now that, that's, that matters most is that which will endure in eternity. Well, I hope these are helpful categories. I'm going to go over them real quickly. We're almost out of time. Uh, we receive the spirit of adoption. We have the privilege of prayer. We have God's fatherly care, his discipline. We are never cast off, and we are his heirs. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace of adoption. We thank you for the clear teaching of the confession, but we thank you even more for the grace itself, not merely for the doctrine of grace, but for the grace of the doctrine. And help us, Lord, penetrate our minds through your word that you love us. That's why we're saved. And we've got all kinds of issues going on. Lord, we're failures in so many ways. But there's other ways, Lord, in which you've really been strengthening us as your people. And we are not the slaves of sin we otherwise would have been. But, Father, we know and rely on the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Cause us to reflect on the doctrine of adoption and to realize we are dearly loved. That you, the, 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 in, a, in a way that we cannot even imagine now, even through our own analogies, you have that unbreakable love of a father for his children. And that is what we are. We are the children of God. Father, let us live unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.